I'm Jason Lewis. I'm Thomas Mills. And I'm Flora Gladwin. Welcome to Climate Optimists. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways that each of us can make a difference. And to start things out, a quick thank you to all our monthly supporters out there. As a nonprofit, it's really your donations that enable us to educate and empower folks to make a difference on climate. You're sort of the fuel that keeps us going, and we truly appreciate it. If you're hearing this and you're wanting to become part of our community supporters, head over to our website, climateoptimist.co, and click the donate button. Absolutely. Even $5 a month makes a huge difference. And when you're there on our website, make sure that you sign up for our monthly newsletter. It's a fact-filled read on climate solutions, climate news, and ways to get involved. So this week, as we kick off 2024, we thought it would be meaningful to step back and take a look at where things stand in our fight against climate change, including our current emissions trajectory, how it compares with where we need to be to avoid the worst climate impacts, and what kind of actions are needed to close the gap. Then we'll use this as a foundation to talk about New Year's climate resolutions that matter. But before we talk climate progress and personal resolutions, let's discuss this week's reason for hope. Thanks, Flora. The um, US EPA has announced methane fees for the oil and gas industry. And methane represents about 12% of the US emissions. And as a gas, it's roughly 30 times more potent than carbon dioxide, um, depending on the time frame you look at. The oil and gas industry is the second largest source of methane in the US after livestock. Um, but it is important to keep in mind, though, that these are all new carbon dioxide and methane emissions added to the biosphere that were not there in the past. The fees for this are a result of the work done in the Inflation Reduction Act, and they'll start at about $900 a ton for 2024, and they'll increase to $1,500 a ton by 2026. Yeah, I was excited to, to see it. It's, it's definitely long overdue. And, you know, the uh, American Petroleum Institute uh, slammed the fee, which, you know, anytime they're really critical of something the administration does on climate, that usually means that their administration is doing a good job. Mm -hmm. I think the quote was, as the world looks to U.S. energy producers to provide stability in an increasingly unstable world, uh, this punitive increase is a serious misstep and undermines America's energy advantage, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. So... With that, uh, let's let's jump into our, our main topic. And to start things off, I think it's worth revisiting, you know, what are our global climate targets and and why they're important. So most folks are probably aware, you know, we have what's called the Paris Agreement, you know, our Paris Climate Accords that went into effect in, in back in 2016. And the the crux of the the Paris target is, you know, trying to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, but keeping it well below two degrees of warming. And effectively, this means that emissions should have peaked already, but need to peak certainly before 2030 and decline rapidly. And, you know, you might be saying, well, does a half a degree really matter that much? The truth is even a tenth of a degree of warming really makes a difference. There's this nice analysis, you can attach it in the show notes, that kind of compares some of the impacts we'll face if we warm by two degrees versus one and a half degrees. And basically two and a half times more people will be facing extreme heat every five years if we warm to, to two versus one and a half. Insect species loss will be three times worse. Plant species loss, two times worse. And when you want to talk about coral reefs and the sea life that 
you know, that that supports, you're talking basically a 70 to 90% decrease because of the warming versus 99%. So effectively, coral reefs, you know, in their current state go away with two degrees of warming. So very important that we limit warming as much as we can, even if we don't quite hit that one and a half degrees Celsius mark. So, you know, I think the important question then becomes, where do we stand in terms of emissions today? And our current trajectory, depending on your, you know, who you look at in terms of modeling is anywhere between two and a half degrees Celsius worth of warming to 2.8 degrees Celsius worth of warming by, by end of century. So we're definitely not on track. We've made some progress because, you know, 10 years ago, we were heading well over three degrees of Celsius, but we've got a lot more work to do very quickly to make sure that we stay within that two degrees or less of, of warming. Yeah, definitely. As Jason's noted, we're undeniably lagging on our 1.5 degrees Celsius Paris climate goal. And we've definitely taken other hits as well from, you know, kind of a lack of progress to clearly some worsening weather. Uh, in 2021, for example, public financing for fossil fuels actually increased with government subsidies almost doubling from the previous year. And the next year in 2022, global deforestation increased slightly to 5.8 million hectares, which to provide some context is an area greater than the size of Croatia deforested within a year. And finally, you know, last year recently, 2023 was the hottest year in recorded history, which seems like it's happening more and more. And we've witnessed firsthand the huge impact that that's had, particularly in reference to natural disasters. However, we're not called climate optimists for nothing, and there are some <laughs> positives to be found in the past few years, like the incredible you know, exponential amount of progress that we've seen in the sale of electric vehicles, and definitely some hope to be found this year as we watch global attention finally recognize legitimately the harmful impact of fossil fuels. So with that, let's slowly transition into our conversation about COP28, this year's climate conference in Dubai. This year's climate conference was called the beginning of the end of fossil fuels, but with weak language like transitioning away from and phasing out fossil fuels, it's definitely hard to say for sure. There were some big wins, well, wins that need to be backed up from a global methane pledge to cut methane levels from 2020 by 30% by 2030, a focus on renewable energy with a commitment to triple our global energy capacity by 2030, and more money put into the loss and damage fund, though still sorely lacking. Another source also noted, interestingly, that there was a clear show of multilateralism, that despite the incredible amount of global tragedy and conflict that we've seen this year, COP28 was the largest and most attended in history. So definitely a mixed bag, but I think some hope to pull from it, especially if in the coming years we can actually put money and action behind some of these pledges. Yeah, I think you're right, Flora. I mean, the truth is we don't want to gloss over the fact that we're, you know, we're not where we need to be. And I think, you know, the global climate conferences are are always, you know, kind of mixed in terms of the results that, you know, that come out of them. I don't think they've, any of them have been as ambitious as we would like, but I, I think to your point, Flora, there were some good pledges that came out of, of COP28. What we really need now is nations doing what they need to do on the back end and putting policies in place to achieve those, because otherwise it just amounts to, to, frankly, to hot air. So I don't know, Thomas, you have any, any thoughts on kind of current climate progress and, and COP28? Uh, 
inadequate is a term that comes to mind. Um, oh. But <laughs> I, I think what it does do is that it leaves plenty of opportunity for the rest of us to get in and get things done. Like if the guys at the top are not going to do it, well, then it sort of falls back on the rest of us to make things happen. And there's still a lot that can be done. Um, both at a, like a very local level and also at a national level for each of our respective countries. So uh, I, I think we've got to look at like what are the biggest roadblocks in our respective nations because that's going to vary depending on where you are around the world and, and how, do we, how do we go after that, whether it's from a legislative perspective or from just an implementation perspective. The technology already exists. It's just about making it happen. Um, so for us in Australia right now, the, the big thing is is battery storage, right? Um, there's too much solar generation on mainland Australia happening right down, now in the middle of the day, and it's got to the point where they're curtailing renewable energy, and we don't want to be doing that. We need every scrap of renewables mm-hmm. we can get right now. But sure. if we don't have the means to store that, then you know you, you end up pushing the grid voltage too high. So that's the big driver here. I know in the US, like the big driver really is the interconnect queues, and that's just... That's, that's merely just a function of lack of resources um, to go and process the application so that they can allow construction of those wind and solar facilities. And so it's right, really, it's just something that just needs to be done. We just need to make sure we put the funds in the right location. I was hoping the Inflation Reduction Act would sort some of that out, but unfortunately, I think those cues are still quite significant. Yeah, I think it's a good point that it really is each country, you know, tackling the areas of the biggest opportunity. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think in a lot of the developed world, that's really around accelerating our transition to renewable energy more than we we already are. It's, you know, accelerating our uptake of, of electric vehicles. And then, you know, I would argue that, the you know, the Europe's and US and, and others in the world have a big role to play in terms of helping the developing world, you know, skip over, you know, this fossil fuel dependency, right? So, Mm-hmm. We need to be putting forth, you know, dollars to help these countries, you know, lending expertise, et cetera, to ensure that they're able to make the transition to renewable energy as well. Otherwise, you know, the developed world is making that transition away from fossil fuels and the developing world is still becomes reliant on them. So, yeah, there's a ton of opportunity. And um, and I guess maybe that's where my source of optimism is in all this is that we still have a lot of levers we can pull and it and none of it's you know relying on technology that we don't have mm-hmm. yeah back along those lines of electric vehicles though i think it and I, I know i've said this in the past in the podcast but i think it's really important that we realize that electric vehicles result in a step change in the price of owning and operating a vehicle right it becomes significantly cheaper just as it was when we moved from the horse to the automobile maybe not in the early days but by the time we got to the model t ford it was cheaper to run a Model T Ford per kilometer than it was to ride a horse, basically, by the time you fed the horse. And so part of my fear is that we will enable um, you know, cheap cars to be manufactured and societies that were not originally built around the car, like the US and unfortunately Australia sort of have been, electric vehicles will expand in their, their reach and maybe displace other transport modes such as walking and cycling and public transport. So I think it's really important that city designers going forward go, right, okay, cars are going to get cheaper um, and the operation of them, 
but we need to, you know for the good of the public and the good of the planet we need to make sure that we don't make the mistakes that Australia and America made with strip malls and mm. you know that massive car expansion that occurred during the 1960s 70s and 80s and we need to continue to design our cities so they are walkable livable rideable and with public transit yeah i mean the electrification of public transit too is just going to be huge i feel like i've seen already in the Canary Islands, they have this whole fleet of hybrid buses coming out, but it's like, why why not skip ahead, right? Why not head straight to electrifying yeah. as best we can? It's, yeah. 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 And I think the beauty about the expansion of battery technology is that you, you take this case in Europe where there's still some diesel locomotives left on you know, uh, sort of longer haul runs. They'll all be replaced soon with battery electric solutions and, and you know, with the ability to then recharge as soon as they get you know, closer to the cities. Yeah. I, I think being able to, you know, if we were sort of to break it down at a, at a macro level, it's really about how do we electrify and become more mm-hmm. become more efficient right and i think the electrification part is getting the attention and rightfully so but we we need to make sure that we're talking about we need to be making things more efficient at the same time so while mm-hmm. an electric car is much more efficient than internal combustion a an electric bike is way more efficient than an electric car so we don't want to lose sight of the efficiency aspect because i think a lot of the focus tends to be on you know on the on the production side that's a great point. Everywhere from, you know, greener houses, improved coaling, like we're going to we're going to definitely be seeing that in the upcoming years as our temperatures are rising. I think I think efficiency is going to be huge. And also like from a resource perspective, right? Like you you look at that electric bicycle, typically there's less than 1/100th the amount of batteries aluminium, et cetera, that goes into making an electric bicycle than there does in a typical electric car. So like it just means a lot less mining and you know less material that we have to mm-hmm. extract from the earth, which has an impact in its own right. Totally. So kind of given where things stand and the fact that we all have finite time, I think the question becomes what kind of a 2024 climate resolution should we be making? And we thought we could speak a little bit about, you know, areas that are, that are kind of high impact and, and in our control. Um, I don't know if you guys have thoughts on categories that people should be focusing on. Ooh, definitely. Thomas, you want to start us off? or? Oh, I think <laughs> Jason's point that he mentioned a while ago, you know, we, we need to look at that split between taking legislative action and personal action. And personal action where I think it, you know, it can be followed by other people, where we're setting the example with something that is achievable for other people. So for me this year, like I'm planning on putting a energy recovery ventilation system in my house. Um, And between that and the modifications I'm making to my wood fire, I aim at halving the amount of heating um, energy that I need in my house. Um, So that's one of my projects. The other one, I'm targeting planting another 300 trees this year on top of the couple of hundred I planted last year. And to be honest, I haven't worked out what the rest of my personal climate goals are for the year, but I'm sure as I see opportunities, they'll they'll come along. Oh, yeah. And I do want to point out to our listeners, going back to that first resolution you're talking about, that in the background of Thomas's screen right now, there is, in fact, a missing furnace. So (laughs) he's really doing it, guys. I got started a week ago. I just, I could see it's going to be a longer project than I planned. (laughs) There's quite a bit of welding and things I've got to do there. 
but those are the kind of ambitious changes that we need to be looking at. It, you know, it's not to say that there isn't, you know, incremental value in, let's say, you know, using reusable shopping bags, but, but that's not going to get us, that's not going to solve climate change. It's not going to solve the, the biodiversity crisis. We got to be doing bigger things. And, you know, and so mm-hmm. I would encourage everybody to get, you know, get ambitious when you're thinking about um, what you want to do in the coming year. I, I know for my own goals, I'm looking at kind of on the, the advocacy legislative side, uh, trying to call or email um, my senator monthly about taking more aggressive climate action. So depending on what I have time for, at least once a month, setting it on the calendar and being able to you know push them to take more action on climate. And then for my personal action, uh, of course, Thomas went first and he's got more ambitious stuff than <laughs> I do. But uh, I'm hoping for any you know air travel that I do do, uh, my goal is to buy double the offsets for any flight. So, you know, at least I'm trying to do my part to to eliminate that impact. And then I'm hoping that can insulate, fully insulate our, our house here. No, that's a great one. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I have, I've got similar thoughts in terms of areas of focus, but coming up with my personal resolutions, I feel kind of challenged because one of my really big ones right now is that I want to get involved in the U.S. election cycle just because... I feel like this election is going to be so colossal for the future state of our world. And I've been trying to figure out how I want to do that from outside of the country, which has been really interesting to navigate. But I mean, that's a huge thing for me, trying to stay as involved as I can and really, you know, classic, get out the vote, get on that legislative side if I can. Lewis, I love your idea of having a really routine call, routine contact. And then besides that, uh, oh, on the food side, long time coming and must, must happen, but fully cutting out red meat. I've been dancing around that my whole life, less and less and less every year, but I do think it's time to have that gone, which is easier said than done in Spain, but definitely worth it. And in terms of little food stuff, I do think even eating seasonally, I've been getting my produce from the local farmer's market and everything, which feels good, but I want to make sure that I'm you know, trying to be a more thoughtful consumer this year, which, yeah, feels very doable. Much, much more minute than ripping the furnace out of my wall, but (laughs) it's where I'm at right now. I mean, I think those are all good actions. So encourage our listeners to to take the time to think about what kind of an advocacy action you're willing to commit yourself to. I mean, it could be as simple as, you know, amplifying messages, you know, on, on social media, uh, to mm-hmm. Floor's point, getting involved here in the U.S. in the 2024 election is going to be absolutely critical from a climate perspective. And then picking a, you know, picking a personal action because it's good mm-hmm. to have, you know, these legislative outcomes, but we don't have obviously as much near as much control over those. So having something you can get engaged with personally gives you that sense of accomplishment, kind of keeps you going when, when you're not necessarily seeing things move as quickly as you would want. Um, on the policy side. So think about electrifying your, your transport, moving mm-hmm. to more efficient means of transportation. Think about, you know, making your, your home more energy efficient, moving away from natural gas. You know, think about, again, to Flora's point, what are, what are you eating? Eating lower on the food chain has a huge positive impact, not only for the climate, but also for, you know, biodiversity. You know, right now, livestock is the biggest driver of defore, tropical deforestation globally. So any pick those buckets, whatever feels realistic for you and, you know, write them down and, you know, hey, we're going to talk about our progress on the resolutions throughout the year and we'll be looking to hear about uh, your progress as well. 
Yeah. And if you're, you know, having a shortage of ideas, you can always feel free to head to our social media where we've got our weekly reason for hope and our weekly action, which should be a good source of inspiration if you need something manageable. Yeah. Good call, Flora. And, and again, don't forget to sign up for that, that monthly newsletter. Um, lots of ideas in there as well about how to get involved in climate action. Well, that's all we've got for you for this week's episode. Uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in. Our next episode will be dropping on, on January 30th. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. Oh,